0: It's time for another edition of the Texas Time Capsule Podcast. Here today with Ben Sawicki, I'm Stephen Shira. Looking forward to telling you a unique Texas story. But we do that every episode, don't we, Ben?
1: Every episode, a unique, (laughs) interesting story.
0: (laughs) We take a lot of things for granted today. We can order groceries from our living room couch. We can watch TV on our cell phones. We can head down to our favorite Texas coastal town, hop on a boat, cruise around without having to worry about a 3,000-pound torpedo slamming into the port bow.
1: (laughs) We live in a real paradise here. (laughs) That's right. That's right.
0: It's the little things you take for granted. But 80 years ago, that was not the case. So let's open up our time capsule for episode 16, The War on the Texas Shore. Number one, the wolf pack. Number two, dynamite. Number three, tar balls. When you head out to the Gulf of Mexico today, you see magnificent cruise ships and oil tankers. But during World War II, the Gulf was littered with German submarines hellbent on disrupting American shipping supply lines. During the war, there were 56 ships sunk in the Gulf of Mexico ...by these German Navy submarines referred to as Wolf Packs. But there's only one known ship that was sunk off the coast of Texas. And the story of that ship is the one we will tell today. The Oaxaca was a Mexican freighter ship used to help supply the Allies in the Gulf. The fate of the Oaxaca would be decided on July the 26, 1942. And here to help us tell this tale is Craig Hlavinka. He's currently the harbor master for the Port of Bay City and has played an integral role in preserving the account of this historic ship. Craig, thanks for joining us today.
2: Thanks for having me.
0: So, Craig, this is such a for me a unique story at a unique time in Texas history. If you could help set the stage for us, We have German submarines in the Gulf of Mexico during World War II, and this Mexican freighter ship is traveling in the Gulf. Why was the Oaxaca a target for German submarines, and what type of cargo was it carrying?
2: My understanding is that that basically any Allied ship that was coming out of the, the Mississippi River was considered a target. You, you have to know a little bit about the uh, the German program. I believe they called it Operation Drumbeat. And, and the idea was that they would send the U-boats out on the East Coast and then also to the Gulf Coast and just prey on Allied shipping. And, and their instructions were to remain submerged during the day, and then at night they would surface to replenish their air and look for targets. and and try to sink targets either during the night or or right at sunup so they could submerge again, um, you know, to to avoid the anti-U-boat patrols. So basically the answer to your question is she was just in the wrong place at the wrong time. (laughs) (laughs) So traveling between uh, the port of New
0: Orleans essentially and Veracruz, Mexico, June the 1st, 1942, was when Mexico officially joined the Allies for the war. And this occurrence happened shortly thereafter, I believe it was July 26th of the same year. Take us through the events of that day. What time of day was it and what actually happened that led to the Oaxaca getting hit by a German
2: torpedo? Um, I've read conflicting reports. Some say it was it was later in the morning, like at 9.45. Um, and then I've read other reports. It was right at sunup, which would fit with the, the instructions the U-boat captains were given. So I'm not really sure exactly what time she was struck, but she was traveling either to Tampico or Veracruz. And, and again, there's conflicting reports where her, her final destination was going to be, but... She, she was running in shallow water, uh, parallel to Matagorda Peninsula. And the captain's thought was if they were in shallow water, they would be less likely to, to be a target of, of a U-boat. <laughs> <laughs> he, he was not correct, unfortunately. So, um, yeah, they, they were about eight miles, uh, offshore from Matagorda Peninsula and, and U-171, I believe it was surfaced and, and fired either one or two torpedoes that missed. And then the, the second or third, it, it found its target, and the and Oaxaca was hit on her, her front quarter. And then there's also conflicting uh, reports about how long she, she took to sink. Um, so some say she sank in five minutes, and others say it took longer. I, I think it probably took longer because the captain actually had time to gather up the ship's documents, logbook, some other important papers. And then they they did a, a sweep of the ship to, to make sure they got all the survivors off. So I think it probably took a little longer than five minutes to sink.
0: So of the people on board, how many were
2: able to make it to safety? Do you know? Uh, there were 45 crew on board. And that's listed crew, <laughs> um, and and six six were killed immediately apparently, and then several others died afterward as a result of their injuries or um, sickness uh, exposure. I guess um, I don't really know the details, but I I know I know that more than six died as a result of of the sinking. And I'm I'm assuming the survivors
0: were rescued by the Coast Guard along the, I guess it would be the coast of Matagorda, correct?
2: Uh, yeah, that's kind of an interesting story. Um, as they abandoned ship, uh, the Oaxaca had two lifeboats, which was kind of like the Titanic, wasn't enough for everyone. Mm-hmm. But they also, they had time to launch the lifeboats, which, uh, again, leads me to believe it, it took longer than five minutes to sink. But they, they got the, the lifeboats launched Got those filled up and then there were still people who, who needed to be rescued. So they had um, several rafts and I even read some reports of people clinging to floating debris. Um, but the, the Coast Guard apparently knew about it pretty quickly and, and sent a cutter out to, to rescue. One lifeboat was, was towing the, the rafts. And so it couldn't go very fast. The other lifeboat, since it wasn't towing anything, they went ahead and, and made a beeline for the shore. And if your listeners will, will are familiar with with Matagorda Peninsula or they want to go to Google Earth and look at it, it wasn't the Air Force back then. It was the U.S. Army Air Corps. They had built a, a training base, like an airport, on Matagorda Peninsula. And this hmm. sinking took place just almost right across from, from where this air base was. So, so luckily there were military personnel, um, right there on the peninsula ready to assist. So at least they
0: had that. It's striking that as you were mentioning earlier about how, you know, the ship was in shallow water, so they thought they would be safe. It's striking just how close these German submarines were to the Texas coastline.
2: Uh It, It was about, about eight miles, um, off of the coastline, and my understanding is, in Louisiana, where the majority of the U-boat activity was, it was much closer. Wow, <laughs> that's just—it's—it's almost—it's really hard to fathom that.
0: Thinking that there'd be German submarines right off the coast, like that's crazy.
2: Yeah, I've—I've I've heard reports from old timers that lived um on the Gulf Coast of Alabama that they would actually see u-boat crews coming ashore and and playing ball on the beach oh my goodness
0: <laughs> that's unbelievable
2: <laughs> um you know i've never read anything official to document that but i i trust the source from where that came so pretty wow. amazing
0: what became of the ship when it sunk is it is it still sunk at the bottom of the gulf or was any of it recovered
2: no it's still sitting there and there's a little confusion um about what happened to the sinking. Um, there's some reports that say it broke in half. Uh, I can tell you it is sitting in two parts on the bottom of the Gulf of Mexico, but uh, I'm not sure that she broke apart when she sank. After she sank, she she was still awash. I mean, you could see the masts were sticking out of the water. I think part of the bridge was just barely at the waterline. So she posed a, a hazard to navigation. So after the war, the the navy went out and dynamited the Oaxaca to to eliminate the hazard of navigation. So I, th- I think it's at least possible that that's when she broke in two. It was was during that uh, that dynamite? Gotcha. And then sunk really to the bad bottom. Bad. And
0: so, have they sent anybody down there, divers or anything, to to check out the the remains?
2: Yeah, it's actually a pretty easy dive. Um, you know, it's only in 60 foot of water, which is 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 uh, very much in the capability of, of any um, beginning sport diver. The the trouble with it is it's so close to shore that unless you catch the conditions just right, the water's really murky. You know, sometimes you have to go 10, 15, 20 miles offshore to get good clear water. So right. um usually the water's so muddy that close to shore it's, it's kind of hard to see, but it, you know, it, it is, it's close to shore. It's a shallow water. So it's an easy dive, you know, people fish around it. It's, it's a good fishing spot, but yes, there has been some, some archeological work done on it uh, by the the Texas historical commission as well as uh, in conjunction with, with an oil company who was doing a survey of the Gulf. Huh? Well, and you know, it's so interesting,
0: uh, it being the only ship to be sunk by a German submarine on the Texas coast is so historically significant. And the way I understand it, Craig, is you were involved in the process of getting the Oaxaca designated as a historical landmark by the Texas Historical Commission. Can you tell us about that process and how long did it take, and why was it so important, in your opinion, to acquire that designation for the Oaxaca?
2: It, it didn't take real long. Um, that, that effort was was largely spearheaded by the, the Texas Historical Commission itself. Um, at the time, the state marine archaeologist was a man named Steve Hoyt. And, and Steve did most of the footwork on that, but it was with the full support of the, the Matagorda County Historical Society. So um I I just was kind of the, the lead from the, the local standpoint to work with the state on getting that designation
0: is there like a plaque or where is there a historical marker anywhere? Because since the, since the ship is at the bottom of the Gulf, I I was wondering, Craig, if maybe you dive down to the bottom and planted the historical marker on the remains
2: of the ship, 55 feet deep. (laughs) (laughs) No, no, unfortunately there's, there's no marker for this. Um, And it's not unusual if, if a, a ship sinks, close to shore, there often will be a marker to to tell you, you know, you're at the point closest to it. Um, A good example is a a blockade runner in Freeport, Texas. It it has a marker. But this one, since since Matagorda Peninsula, and just so your listeners will know, we call it Matagorda Peninsula, but technically it's an island. Because of some navigation channels that were cut, you cannot drive to the peninsula. You have to get there by by airplane or by boat. So it's all privately owned. It's not state land. So there's just really not a lot of uh, traffic. So that's that's why there's no historical marker there.
0: As Harbor Master for Matagorda Harbor, Craig, what types of initiatives do you guys embark upon? And can you give our listeners some information if they are in the area, um, provide maybe some contact info so that they can learn more about Matagoda
2: Harbor and uh, the Port of Bay City? All right. Yeah, th- thanks for asking. Yeah, so, so the Port of Bay City Authority is a county navigation district. Um, and, and our job is, is to foster uh, commerce in the county through, through maritime activity. And we, we have two facilities, the Port of Bay City itself, which is up the Colorado River. That's an industrial basin where we load, um, petroleum and, and other products. And then in the, the historic town of Matagorda, um, right on the intercoastal waterway, we operate Matagorda Harbor, which is mostly a pleasure boat marina. We do have a little bit of, um, commercial activity here as well, but. For the most part, it's a, it's a commercial, I mean, a, a, a recreational destination.
0: I always have to ask this, being out on the Texas coast, Craig, so I'm curious, during hurricane season, uh, when there's a, a potential threat in the Gulf, what type of actions do you guys take to prepare for potential hurricanes?
2: Oh, we we have different stages. Whenever we have a, a storm in the Gulf, we kind of go to stage one and start getting things ready, it's crossing our fingers, hoping <laughs> hoping it's going to miss us this time. And you know, we're we're lucky. The forecasting is just so good now that we we know exactly where it's going to hit and when it's going to hit. So we uh yeah we just kind of go by stages depending on where the storm is at and, and our our chances of being hit. Well, having to
0: deal with the hurricanes is bad enough. I'm glad we don't have to deal with German submarines in the Gulf right now.
2: <laughs> Thank goodness the U-boat days are over. Oh, and I, I would encourage your listeners if, if, um, if they're ever in Chicago, there, there's a, a, a type nine U-boat that was captured by, by the Navy, um, and the the museum there. And it's, it's pretty much identical to the the one seven one that, that sank the Oaxaca, and so it's it's well worth the tour if if you're in Chicago, take take an hour and and go see the U boat. It's an amazing experience. Craig, I'm so glad you mentioned that
0: because um, I have been on that uh, German U boat that they have in the museum, and, and the reason it's unique is because most of the um, most of the U boats before they if if like they were got hit they would, the Germans would destroy it or scuttle it so that the, you know, the allies couldn't get a hold of their technology. And that one is unique because they were able to tow that thing all the way back intact. And so you can actually walk around on it. So that, that is a great, and it's so, the biggest thing I remember about it is how tiny it was. I mean, it is so small, like you can barely move in there. I can't imagine being on that thing with 20 or 30 other people.
2: (laughs) Uh Oh, it must've just been almost unbearable. you, you know the, the, those crews. I, I don't know how they did it. American submarines, by contrast, were much larger and more comfortable. I mean, not not like they are today, of course, but right. you know, they were so so much bigger and more comfortable than the German U-boats. Absolutely. Well, Craig, this was this
0: was really interesting, and and I, I really appreciate you taking some time to uh, chat with us today about this truly unique time in in Texas history. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. The ironic thing about the Oaxaca is that it actually was originally a German ship. The Mexicans seized that ship from Germany as World War II began, and then it was flying under the Mexican flag after that. So when the Germans sank the Oaxaca, it was actually sinking a ship that was originally a German ship. There's got to be some irony in there somewhere. The ship was actually carrying a rubber, and after the ship sank, a lot of that rubber washed on the shore of Matagorda Beach. and people would go to the beach, it would be like – kind of like when you go to Galveston now, and you get you know the, the little tar balls in between your toes at the beach. It's similar to that.
1: Rubber was a very important commodity in this economy and a very important part of the war effort. Rubber was in, in vehicle tires. Uh, they made pontoon bridges out of it. Uh, even – Gas masks had a lot of rubber parts, so it was very important. Uh, very important piece to the whole the war,
0: right? And the Germans were probably pretty indiscriminate as far as what cargo ships they were sinking in, in the Gulf. But yeah, to your point, Ben, rubber was a a major major commodity uh, during World War II. It's amazing, Ben, how during the war. It wasn't just something that was happening a continent away. It really brought it home because we're talking about the Gulf of Mexico off the coast of Texas here. In fact, shrimpers on shrimp boats in Louisiana and Texas would spot German U-boats in the Gulf of Mexico and radio their frequency back to the Coast Guard so they could identify them. In some cases, if a ship was hit by a torpedo, the shrimpers would pick up and rescue the passengers that had abandoned ship and take them back to shore. So it's a great example of how the war was truly hitting close to home.
1: It really is interesting to think about that because what we normally think about when we're talking about world war two is we think victory in Europe VE day. Mm-hmm. Um, we think about Japan. We think about how close to home do we really get? We get Hawaii. So when you start to consider how close the enemy was to texas to the united states it really changes the way that you start to process this information
0: it makes you feel vulnerable i mean it wasn't like we were some impenetrable force protecting the united states here i mean
1: you know yeah we've got nazis in the gulf of mexico <laughs> this is these are real nazis from the 1940s not these you know, these freaks that we see in the United States with the swastika tattoo on their forehead or right, something like right. that. This is a real Nazi attacking <laughs> yeah. Americans, it, attacking Texans. Yeah. Part
0: of this defense for these submarines, it wasn't just taking place in the Gulf, but there were outposts in Texas used to combat these World War II German submarines. Mm-hmm.
1: Yes, there's an interesting... Um An interesting defense that we had put together, the Navy commissioned some land in Hitchcock, Texas in 1943, and they built a hangar for this, the the lovable flying object, the blimp, (laughs) Uh, They had um, blimps fly the Gulf looking for these German U-boats to try to locate these guys that were were threatening our our ships.
0: And just like Craig said in the interview – they wanted to be submerged during the daylight so they wouldn't be seen by surveillance like these blimps, and then they would do their attacking at night. But to Ben's point, in Hitchcock, Texas, which is literally 35 minutes south of Houston, uh, near the coast of Galveston, there was an actual blimp hangar that was a 3,000 square acres of land that the Navy commissioned. And the hangar was so large that it could fit up to six blimps inside of it. Now, it was only operational for a few years during the war. After that, it got used for several different purposes. It was used to store rice. Uh, During the Korean War, they actually remanufactured some tanks inside of the hangar. But eventually, it had so much hurricane damage, there was two or three hurricanes that hit within a 10-year period, it had so much hurricane damage that they demolished it. But the four pillars that stood at the entrance of the hangar still remain there today as 200-foot-tall reminders of what happened in the Gulf of Mexico during World War II.
1: Must have been a big hangar.
0: (laughs) It was. Like I said, six blimps. So uh, that's an awesome hidden World War II gym uh, off the Texas coast that you can still see today. We'll post some pictures of the Hitchcock Blimp hangar and the pillars that still stand there today on our Instagram page at Texas Time Capsule. Hitchcock also had a army basic training camp there during the war as well. What's known now as Jack Brooks Park in Hitchcock was the site of the army training facility. And I, like I said, it was open just during the war for five or six years. So just kind of some tidbits there of, of relics
1: from the past, the Texas time capsule specialty.
0: There you go. There you go. That's our MO. Thanks again to Craig Levinka for coming on the show today and telling the story of the Oaxaca and appreciate his commitment to Texas history. That's going to do it for episode 16. Thank you for listening and join us next time when we open up another Texas Time Capsule.